Hey, Gavin here. Welcome back to season two of the Business Mastermind podcast. And by now, you've probably got the measure with this new seasonal format, a few things have changed. First of all, there's a theme. The theme to season two is revive. Can I revive your drive after the um, terrible, challenging, uh, demanding, emotional roller coaster of the last 12 or so months, uh, 15, 18 months. Um, we need to get things back on track and revive and fixated and focused on where we're heading once more, back locked on to our North Star. And the other thing that's changing is the format in terms of the length of the episodes. We'll go deep on subjects. I want you to think of these as masterclasses where we're not having a superficial quick 20 minute conversation. These are designed for you to digest over several sittings, you know, uh, and also to revisit, to allow the ideas, the conversations, the metaphors um, to waft over you, to luxuriate in the insights that they will provide. And today's no different. It's a, it's another hour-long episode or more. And we are going to be talking about a key area about how to get out of your own way. At a key stage in my development, uh, I, I finished a, a, a protracted period of intensive training in behavioral change that equipped me in the skills around coaching and training and facilitation, but also problem-solving within the world of business and I remember going to um, a really powerful important and influential uh, mentor in my life and said what do I need to do next and he looked at me fixed me with a really uh, strong look backed by um, a beaming smile piercing look backed by a beaming smile and he said get out of your own way so today Today, in this conversation with Akhtar Khan, we're going to address that very subject. I don't let him off the hook. I want to find his journey from a mechanic, a car mechanic, through to a multimillionaire a property investor. He's doing acquisitions around businesses, and he's also a mentor and coach. But what was his journey to get out of his own way? We hear a bit of his life story, but then what you will hear is me unpick his process model his process so that you can learn from it and apply it in your own way and you'd be delighted at the end of the conversation I share with you the key milestones or the key steps of the process so that you can take away from this and start to play with these stages and get the results that you need this is a masterclass on how to get out of your own way if you're loving these podcasts, then please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash business master. It's super easy. I promise you, your support really is appreciated and it helps in the creation of these in-depth masterclasses and interviews to equip you, your team and your business for growth. If you have supported us already, many thanks. And if not, you can do this by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash businessmaster. You'll also be able to get access to exclusive content from the guests and myself, further insights and information on the featured episodes, and how you can get more access for you and your business. Hey, Gavin here. Welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Boy, have I got a treat for you today. Akhtar Khan. So first of all, here's a sales pitch, right? So he's a successful business investor, property entrepreneur, an authority on mindset. Uh, his mission, his commitment uh, in supporting others to build wealth through property and business so that they can live life on their terms. Had a challenging 
start in life and growing up in a dysfunctional single parent family with minimal financial resources. Right. That bit over. I bloody love this guy. I spent half an hour talking to him. You know, when you, you sometimes meet someone and you connect with them immediately, this guy has got a huge amount of value, great energy, genuine, genuine down to earth guy who I just think this is going to be a really powerful conversation that you're going to be a part of and sharing between Akhtar Khan and myself. So Akhtar, welcome and thank you for reaching out to join us on the Business Past Mind podcast. Uh, thank you for having us on here. It's a real privilege and we've had a great, great talk beforehand. So I'm really excited to share some stuff. Yeah, mate, like I like pre-show talks are usually about 10, 15 minutes. We, we'd have been going on for an hour if we hadn't said, come on, let's, let's press record. So... Look, everybody's had an interesting story in life, and you started from a, a background that um, that was, was was dysfunctional, that caused trauma in your life. Before we go into that, I want some highlights. You've basically gone from a grease monkey, from a, a mechanic in London, to basically, not basically, to having a, a, a large property portfolio that you own, enabled you to retire at the age of 37, and then you've gone on to coach and mentor others, train others in order to be able to do deals around property, to do deals around acquisitions and help people. Give us the highlights of that journey from, you know, from a, from a garage, you know, covered in grease in London through to where you sit today, Akhtar. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's quite, it's been quite a journey. So let's just start at the very beginning. So I did grow up in a very challenging um household you know we, we was a single parent family um my parents split when i was young i was about five years of age there were five kids i was the eldest of five you know the challenging thing was my mom had mental health issues and you know she back then she was undiagnosed we're talking like 40 uh, 46 years of age so we're talking a long time ago so she was a stressed out single mom she had mental health issues you know it was very challenging my father wasn't around so it was a very toxic environment and i had to grow up very quickly you know when i was when my parents split Everyone told me I was the man of the house. I've got to take care of my mum. That's kind of a crazy thing to tell a five-year-old kid. But yeah, you're the oldest, were you? I was the oldest. Yeah, I was the oldest. Yeah. So you know, um, it, it, it was a pretty crazy time. But I grew up in that environment, and you know, obviously, we're talking before the recording. You know, one of the things that happens when you're in that kind of environment that is, you know, less than ideal. And I mean, there's going to be people that have had a great childhood, great, you know, wonderful upbringing, but it doesn't take a lot of much for a child to be wounded. So when you're in a situation that's tra- traumatic, it's challenging, it's toxic, it's abusive, all that stuff has an impact on your heart, your mind, and your soul. You know, you end up having limiting beliefs around yourself. You end up having, you know, uh, denting your self-worth and your self-esteem, you know, and um, it creates trauma. So you become afraid of things, you, know, you become afraid of more painful experiences. So that was a real challenge. So that was where I started out. My parents were, were apart, but although my father wasn't around, my parents had this, um, they're like cat and dog. So for like for a decade, they used to fight like cat and dog. You know, it was just toxic. It was just a very toxic environment. And it all reached a big peak and big crescendo when I got to about the age of 15. My parents decided to have this one massive fight. They dragged me and my siblings through this very bitter custody battle. Um, they're having a great fight, but they couldn't see the damage that it was doing to us as kids. And I pretty much went off the rails. You know, I was, I was quite a bright kid. I went to a grammar school. I just didn't know how to cope with and process the emotions that I was going through. I had enough tra- trauma growing up. I just had more drama and more trauma. And I just kind of, part of me just almost died inside and gave up. And I thought, you know what, what's the point? Kind of gave up on life. So kind of gave up on school, started bunking school, skipping school. I soon got kicked out. Um, I didn't really know what to do because my friends from grammar school didn't really want to know me anymore. 
Um, you know, the, the, the other kids in my area didn't really want to know me. So I just kind of ended up like hanging out with the other dropouts. Now, what do dropouts do? Not a great deal. And there's a problem with that because you become who you associate yourself with. So they just didn't want to do much. They just went to party. Before you know it, I was out partying. I was out drinking. I was smoking weed. I was doing all the things that you do not want your 15-year-old kid to be doing. That was me. Got in trouble with the law. Anyway, you know, eventually I got to the age of 16 and I decided I'm going to go and work. But I had no qualifications, no skills. So I got crappy job after crappy job after crappy job. I used to whiz around on a moped delivering pizzas for Domino's Pizza. I used to stack shelves in Sainsbury's when Sainsbury's used to be brown and orange a long time ago, right? Yeah, so yeah. a brown uniform. Yeah. And I even, even worked as a waiter in an Indian restaurant. So that was, that was my life. That was my lot. And it was pretty damn rubbish, if I'm honest with you. So life was boring, but the highlight of my life was partying. So I used to, I used to be one of these guys that used to like live for the weekend. I used to work hard, blow my money on a Saturday night, go out partying. But this is the early 90s. So if you go back to the early 90s, like the rave scene was kind of all, all the kind of rage, really, you know. So I remember going out partying and like being part of these raves and everything else. And I found a passion, which was actually DJing. So I had a great time. I DJed in clubs, bars, you know, these big field raves, even on a pirate radio in a, in a tower block in South London. So I had a great time. Yeah. And that was like a lot of fun. There's a lot of pleasure seeking activities. But the problem of being part of that race in the early 90s was that class A drugs, ecstasy was part of everyday life. And before I knew it, I started using and, you know, it, it was it was fun. It all seemed fun at the time until I nearly OD'd on ecstasy. And that was like a real wake up call for me. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got to sort my life out. I can't do this. And I remember thinking, why am I doing this? Like, why am I putting myself in a situation where I, I could I could die? You know, I'm doing this stuff, which is all good fun. But look at my life. My life is pretty damn crap, you know. And I had to have this really kind of sobering moment where I just thought, yeah, what I'm doing right now isn't working. My life isn't working. I'm not where I need to be. I don't feel good about myself. I need to change. And I decided to move out of home because it was still very toxic then. I remember moving out of home. I, I, I left behind that peer group. I left behind the rave scene. I kind of got out of that. And it was a very lonely time because I didn't really have anyone around me. I was kind of in this no man's land. And I worked my butt off, got myself a decent job, a proper job. And um, I saved up my money and I ended up deciding to move into a flat. And I remember moving into this one bedroom flat in South London. I'd been in for a couple of days and the agent says to me, the landlord's going to come around and pick up the rent. So, you know, expect a knock on the door. So one evening there's a knock on the door, I open the door. So let's just bear in mind here. So I was 18 years of age at this time. I used to dress with a baseball cap and a puffer jacket. And I used to look like someone from the ghetto. So I opened the door. And there's this young kid there who's dressed exactly like me. So he's got a baseball cap on, like a puffer jacket. I think he had some acid smiley T-shirt on or whatever. And he said, look, I've come to pick up the mail. And I was like, oh, okay, you must be the landlord's son. He said, no, I'm Andy, your landlord. And what came out of my mouth, I can't say on this podcast, but I was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me. So I was somewhat rattled by how is this kid my landlord, but also intrigued at the same time. So I got to know this guy, Andy, became really good friends with him. I said, Andy, how did you buy this property? So he said to me, look, I, I uh, inherited some money when a, a relative passed away. I inherited 10 grand. I then went and borrowed another 10 grand from my dad. I went to auction and bought this flat, the one that you're in for 20 grand. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. He said, but then I refinanced it for 25 grand, got all of my money back out. And I was like, wow, you can do that, can you? He said, yeah. And I was like, wow, I've got to become a property investor. I then found out that Andy had repeated this process five times. So he bought five properties recycling his cash. It's called a no money left in strategy and property. 
So I was blown away by this and thought, I've got to become a property investor. So I rushed out and bought my first property 10 years later. Now, people say to me, why did it take you 10 years? Well, it took me 10 years because every time I went out to go and do stuff, there was a couple of challenges. The first challenge was education. There wasn't really a great deal of education. There wasn't all the Facebook groups and mentoring groups and networking that there is today. So education was very limited. There was a couple of programs on TV. We had like Homes Under the Hammer. We also had like uh, Property Ladder, Sarah Beanie. That was what there was. And that was kind of teaching the vanilla strategies. But the biggest problem was me. Okay. When it came to doing stuff, I'd procrastinate. Okay. I'd talk myself out of it. I'd go to do something and I'd go, oh, what if it goes wrong? So I had this negative, like, you know, voice inside my head. What if you get it wrong? What if you make a mistake? You want to look stupid. You know, there's all the what ifs and all that butts going on inside my head. You know, every time I got out of my comfort zone, you know, if I went to go, I remember going to speak to a bank manager and I sat in the bank manager, like with, with the bank manager. And before the meeting started, he was smirking and laughing. And I didn't know what he's laughing at. But looking back now, you don't really go dressed to see the, you know, the bank manager with a baseball cap and a hoodie on. You know, you just don't look you, that you way. I did. I did. I did. Right. And that, that was where I was at that time. And I remember yeah, thinking, just the perfect uniform to impress a bank manager. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I had all these things and there was like bits of imposter syndrome, like, you know, who might who might be doing this? You know, this isn't for me. And it's all right for Andy, but this isn't for me. So I had all this negative self-talk. I had these limiting beliefs about myself. Right. I part of me was self-sabotaging because deep down inside there was a part of me that didn't believe I deserved it. You know, and I found the whole thing stressful and overwhelming. And I was going round in circles. And I kind of, I didn't know it at the time, but I was suffering from shiny penny syndrome. I went to go do something that was difficult or it was hard, or it took me out of my comfort zone. And then I went, I thought, oh, maybe this is not the right thing for me. Maybe I should be doing something else. And I flitted from this to that and everything else. Eventually, 10 years later, I bought my first property. I got on a ladder. And although it was a good deal, you know, it didn't, didn't quite make me enough money to retire. It took me another eight years of, you know, buying property. But at the time I bought my first property, what I was doing then is I was a grease monkey. I was a mechanic. I used to work for the, uh, a company that was subcontractors for the AA. So I used to be like on the side of the road doing breakdowns and that kind of stuff. And it was at this time that I also met someone who was, um, I guess he was an NLP-based business coach. You know, one thing, I didn't know this at the time. He used to have conversations with me and like he used to have these little conversations with me and like they used to make me think differently and do things differently. And I remember like, Used to be spaced out and tranced out, but didn't realize it at the time. Didn't realize what he was doing. Cut a very long story short. Um, he started to notice something in me that I didn't notice in myself, which is that I was very good at building rapport with people. I was very good at packaging up deals and selling them to people. And also, you know, he I, I was also a man of my work. So he would um, see me. You know, I used to have a workshop in South London. I used to restore classic cars in there. And uh, he used to come in there. I did some work on his car. And, uh, you know, he used to see people coming from all around the country to buy stuff that if they look around the corner, they'd find. And he said to me, how are you doing this? Like, how, what are you saying to people? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just had a conversation with him. The guy wanted this. And I, I, I just didn't know what I was doing. So he then asked me to, you know, if I, if I refer someone to you, would you give me a commission? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. What do you want? 10%. So, um, you know, he sent some people to me. I'd sell them stuff. I'd give them a call and say, look, your pal came around. There's a check in the post. This went on for about a year and a half. And then they, you know, he, he invited me out to dinner with his wife. And uh, it was at that point he revealed what he did. You know, he's told me he was a, he was a business consultant, business coach, management development coach, and um, that they do something called NLP, which is about the mindset. And the reason they wanted me to come out to dinner with me is because they've got to know me. They see what I do and they think I'd be a great salesman 
selling, you know, uh, management development and, uh, you know, uh, training and learning to corporates. And I was like, wow, this would be a really cool thing to do. So I decided to hang up my, my overalls. Um, I started to learn about NLP. I started to learn about the corporate world. And I made that transition from being a grease monkey to actually selling um, training packages for, for corporates. You know, that's kind of my, my entry into it. So whilst I was doing this, and I started this journey of personal growth and personal development, I started learning about NLP. I started to learn about business. Um, it really like lifted the lid off my mind. It really woke me up. It was probably like, you know, the film, The Matrix, you've got the red pill, blue pill. Yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was a red pill moment of me really awakening myself and starting to see things, you know? I'd just like to pause you there, though, because I want to go back, because you recognize yeah. that um, you, you were self-sabotaging, you were questioning whether you deserved it, you were doing the shiny pill syndrome, as in, or the shiny, you know, ball syndrome, oh, the next thing coming over the horizon, I'm going to try that, because surely I'm going to be better at that, that's going to be a better fit for me. How did you get out of your own way? Do you know, I, I think, it's a great question because one of the things that I started to see, there's a big difference between people who get average or mediocre results in their life and people who are successful. People who are successful think differently. They think differently, they feel differently, and they act differently. And I could see that. It was glaringly obvious. So how I got myself out of my own way was really me starting to understand how I'm getting in my way, the kind of thoughts and patterns that I was doing. So it was me starting to become aware of psychology, me kind of getting involved in personal development, that was really the catalyst. But the thing is, that wasn't enough. It was the pain of my, it was my life. It was the pain I was going through. I was living a mediocre life. It was not fun, you know? Um, I was doing a lot of things that other people were doing, which is, you know, it's very easy to get into this uh, lifestyle of like working throughout the week and then you live for the weekend, you know? And, and it's, it's a crap lifestyle to have because you don't aspire to do much more because you don't believe you can do much more. You don't believe you can have much more. But I grew up where, you know, some of my family members were business owners. So it was kind of in my blood. So I knew that there was more. I just didn't know how to do it. And I think the bigger motivator for me was pain. I just didn't like the life I was living. I didn't like what I had. I looked at other people thinking, wow, it's great that they've got this. It's great that they've done that. It's great that they've done this stuff. How are they doing it? Why can't I get, get to that point? And I think it was pain. It was frustration. Um, and, and it was just knowing that I wanted to have a better life. You know, my experience of nearly dying made me like really put life, just see the value in life. You know, it's only when you get to a point where you, you know, you either nearly lose your life or you lose a loved one that you start to see how valuable life is. And, you know, I don't think it's a dress rehearsal. You know, I think we've got to make the most out of it. And I think that was probably the catalyst for me. Going, Look, I've got to make the most out of life. I've got to make the most out of life. Right. So how did you, a decision as a catalyst, you've got ingrained patterns, ingrained patterns of behavior that stem from a traumatic childhood that saw you steer a path away from education, that saw you finding kinship through the wrong crowd or whatever, or through a fun crowd, but that fun crowd were a mask. It covered up the hurt, the pain beneath. So you're dealing with, whether you were aware of it or not, deep set stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. At the time, I wasn't aware of it. So awareness, obviously, is the first part of solving a problem. You immerse yourself around the tools of NLP, hypnosis. You, st you study those. But in my experience, there's a world apart from getting the theory and knowing how to apply those skills in a coaching scenario or a therapeutic scenario to help others. Quite different to be able to apply them to yourself to overcome the well-entrenched habitual 
thinking patterns that have caused or driven the behavior over decades by that stage. So how did you start to create those new neural pathways, those new habits, the new level of um, what's the opposite to self-sabotage, self self-support, self-coaching, self, I've never, I've never really thought about the opposite to self-sabotage, but whatever that is, um, self-championing. Um, uh, how did you start that transition? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, I think for me, it was being brutally honest with myself. I think that when I was in a load of pain, when I was going through a lot of that stuff, when I was with those wrong people, there was a level of denial. You know, I was BSing myself around things. and I didn't want to see those hurt places. I didn't want to see the things I was doing where I was self-sabotaging. I didn't want to see that. It was too painful to see it. But I got to a point where I realized, you know what? My life isn't working. This isn't getting any better. I think you could say I probably had like a midlife crisis very early, which is just waking up and going, hang on, this is not working. I am sick of the pain. And I'm aware that I'm doing things that don't work. So being aware is one thing. And I think, you know, one thing that um, you can do, you, you can become very aware of things that you're conscious of through learning, you know, uh, and, and like, you know, reading books and studying and going courses and stuff. You can learn all this stuff, but there's a deeper level at your subconscious. And one of the things that for me that was a big catalyst was when I realized this was a little bit later on. I think I realized that even though I'd got to a point of being successful, there were still patterns of behavior that I was running that were not helpful, not useful, hurtful for me and hurtful for other people. So it was, it was just seeing those things that don't work and going, hang on, I need to change this stuff. Why am I doing it? Why am I doing this stuff when I know it doesn't make me happy long term? It's like having a knee jerk reaction. You know, I remember like being, being like at school and uh, I remember having a fight with a guy. I was probably in my teens right? and I had a fight and I took this guy out. Afterwards, I was like, what am I doing? I felt so much remorse for it. I'm like, why did I do that? And it was these knee-jerk reactions. I used to question, why am I doing what am I doing? Well, why do people around me do the things they do? You know, it was this question of why. It was like a, a deep inquisitiveness around why people do what they do. And I think this is probably from like growing up with the dysfunctional family. Like, why is my mum the way she is? Why is my dad the way he is? I just didn't get it. It didn't make sense. So I used to put myself under that same microscope and go, why am I doing this stuff? This just doesn't work. Well, this is stupid. It doesn't make sense. Why am I doing it? So I think that was like what made me want to go deeper, what, what made me want to look deeper into myself. So that, there's, there's the aim motivation. You've, you, you've, you've had that conversation, you know, that, that, that you've seen, you've looked in the mirror or you've just sat down and like, give yourself a good talking to. It's like, this isn't working. I want to do something about it. You're asking the question why. But what you're still dealing with is well-entrenched patterns of behavior that you've had since a kid. So we're at awareness. Yeah. How do you move? How did? What was your path through it? Because you don't get to being a multimillionaire in property carrying all of those self-sabotaging behaviors with you. No, absolutely not. So the, the way that I started to do this or, or started to change those patterns of behavior, first of all, I started to learn about NLP. Okay, but beyond NLP, that opened me up to more stuff. I was then in therapy for a while. Then I started to learn about hypnotherapy and I kind of trained as a hypnotherapist. That opened me up to really understanding what those subconscious patterns are. So were you learning about or applying to yourself? Both. So I, I learned about stuff. So, so one of the things that I did was I learned, let's say, for example, with NLP, I learned how to uh, um, become an NLP practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a belief that if you want to master something, learn how to teach it to other people. Mm -hmm, totally. so, so, so I learned NLP as a, as a practitioner, then master practitioner. Then I went to the level of becoming a trainer so I could teach it. You know, yeah. that's what I wanted to do. 
I, I learned hypnotherapy, you know, and then I started to, to practice and was a practicing hypnotherapist for a while. Okay. Didn't teach hypnotherapy, but when you understand it, you can apply it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what gave me the awareness or perhaps the deeper awareness to start looking at my patterns of behavior, my thoughts, what I do, where does it all come from? What driving it? Why am I doing it? You know, so it gave me almost like, um, <clears throat> If we go back to the matrix analogy, it's like looking looking at the construct, it's looking at the programming that we had. So if you think of NLP, it's about the programs that we run and those thought patterns. So like you can see, like a computer programmer can see code on a screen, I can almost see patterns of behavior, you know, and where they come from, whether it's myself and other people. It's like I see that. So I kind of developed that awareness. And once I started to see more, um, it was a very uncomfortable experience because the more aware you become, especially in business and life, we think that we want to go forwards. And when you start to become more and more aware, you start to see more and more of your, your, your unresourceful patterns or your negative patterns and things that you do, it starts to feel like you're going backwards. It starts to feel like, oh, shoot, I'm seeing more and more of my stuff. I feel like I'm going backwards. I'm not going forwards because I'm seeing all these challenges I've got, I'm, all these unhelpful patterns of behavior, all these trauma responses that I've got. So that was the key for me, is really starting to see not just my thought processes that were deeply ingrained and habitual, but it was starting to see my emotional responses and reactions, things that used to trigger me. And then starting to really understand trauma. You know, that was probably maybe about 10, 11 years ago where I still, you know, after a really painful relationship breakup, I had a load of trauma that came up to the surface. And it was then at that point that I started to really understand the depth of my trauma and, you know, things like PTSD. I'm like, why am I here? I've got I've got everything I want. I've just gone through a relationship breakup, which has been painful. I've got everything that I want. I've got more money than I can spend. I'm a successful multimillionaire. I've got this huge property portfolio. But right now, none of that means nothing because the level of pain that I'm in is intolerable. Why is that? What, what is this? It was very, very confusing for me at the time. But starting to understand the depths of the trauma that we have as human beings was what, able to, what was able to help me to keep moving forward. Let's just pause for a moment to unpick some of Akhtar's process there. So pain came through really strong, didn't it? He's, he uses the phrase that, you know, multimillionaire, I've got so many things going right in my life, but yet so much pain, so much trauma. You know, we do everything in life to either avoid pain, to move away from pain or move towards pleasure. Akhtar got incre- increasingly aware and in tune with the pain that he and saw the linkage between how he was causing that pain but now i've got the tools he he, he got he got past he got he saw the denial he got to the point of being awareness of the the problem awareness of the denial that he was creating to the point he realized look my life's not working then he went out and sought the tools whether it be nlp or whether it be help therapeutically to understand what was going on how he was creating and constantly recreating that pain for himself start to understand the trauma and by doing so he made sense of it he got the tools to address it to deal with it and then that helped him to make to move forward so he wasn't the victim he had been for some time but then he decided to be the victor he decided to say right what do i need to do to a become aware so i can understand the problem and how do i start the process of fixing the problem 
to heal, to move on, and to create new patterns of behavior, new kind of um, mental highways or pathways in the brain to create the reality or the results that he wanted rather than enduring more pain. He got to the point where enough was enough. The pain was too acute. It was time to take action. So one of the things that I have learned through my own experiences, one of the things I teach in my academy when I coach people is that whenever you go through like what I call the phases of implementation, whenever you're trying to level up your life, we're going to hit these glass ceilings. Okay. And the thing that's going to, going to what, what creates the glass ceiling is going to be our belief system. And it's going to be the trauma. It's going to be the things that we've had in our past. That's going to keep us within our comfort zone. So we have to, if ever we want to kind of progress in life, we have to break through those glass ceilings, which means we need to change our belief system, but also we need to heal the trauma that, that is normally attached to some of those beliefs in the first place. So you talked about the phases of implementation and the four phases of implementation. What are those four phases? Yeah, absolutely. So I created this model. This is where I got stuck. So we you know when we mentioned earlier on, like I, I was looping around for 10 years. The first phase of implementation is what I call the euphoria phase. This is where you get excited and go, great, I'm going to go become a property investor. I'm going to become a business coach. I'm going to be an online marketer. Whatever it is you're going to go do. I've read a book. I've gone on a course. I've been on a mastermind. Okay. And this is where you're euphoric because at this point, you, you, you think you've got the cat in the bag. You think you've got the deal. You think you're going to nail it and smash it out of the park. So you're in this phase of euphoria, which is great. Okay. But the problem with being this, in this phase is that you've got this full sense of achievement. You think because you made the decision to become a property investor like I did, you think you're going to, you're going to nail it. The okay. problem is at this point is you've got unconscious incompetence. You just don't know what mm. you don't know. Yeah. The next phase is called the epiphany phase. This is where you go and learn all the, all the theory that you've got, all the stuff you've learned on your mastermind, the books, the courses, whatever. You now go to put it into practice and you realize, oh, shoot, it's not as easy as I thought. Conscious incompetence. Absolutely. So uh, this isn't as easy as I thought, as I thought it was going to be. I've gone to see the estate agent. What do I say to them? What if I look stupid? You know, what if they realize I'm new to this? And, you know, all those fears, all those insecurities, all those doubts start to kind of creep in. Okay. So it's at this point when you've got to that um, epiphany phase, you have this big realization that this thing that I'm trying to pursue is actually harder than what I thought it is. This is where you get met with resistance. So what do I mean by resistance? This is the stress. This is the overwhelm. If you're lucky, you're going to be out of your comfort zone and like, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you're unlucky, you're going to be in a load of pain because it will bring up a lot of painful experiences for you or painful things from the past. You know, this is where imposter syndrome kicks in. This is where shiny penny syndrome kicks in. This is where people have those crises of confidence because in your job, your business, your career, your top of your game, you can do things on autopilot. Here you are now, you're at the bottom of that learning curve and it's uncomfortable. Our egos don't like it. So the problem is most people get stuck at this second stage. I was going to say, this is where, so if this is resistance, is stage three, yeah? If resistance, yes. oh, yeah. Sorry, is, is resistance stage three after the epiphany no, no, being? Yeah, so so stage two, which is the epiphany, epiphany. stage, you're met with resistance, yeah? Oh, you met with resistance. At yeah. stage. And yes, you absolutely, I completely concur that you do get the most, that's why most people get stuck at, at that epiphany stage that with that resistance. Absolutely. The next phase yeah, is the evolution phase, which is where people break through. But this is probably the toughest place because most people don't realize that this is the stuff that you're going to go through, that this is normal. And they don't have the tools to navigate that stuff or handle it. So most people don't understand they've got the theory uh, of, of doing whatever it is they want to do, whether it's business, entrepreneurship. You can apply this to anything, yeah? 
But unless you've got the tools to deal with that stuff, unless you've got the tools to deal with the stress, to deal with the overwhelm, to deal with the fear, to deal with the crisis of confidence, okay, to deal with whatever, you know, um, wherever you are in terms of being out of your comfort zone, you know, to manage that stuff. The problem is most people don't know this stuff, so they don't know when, they don't know how to deal with it when they come up against it. And when they come up against it, they're like, oh, it must be me, there's something wrong with me. You know, why am I experiencing this when no one else is? Everyone else on my mastermind looks good. Everyone else in my business networking is looking good. They look like they've got it all together, but I'm the one who's having this kind of internal crisis. Well, no, if you're a human being and you're going from point A to point B and you're doing something new that you haven't done before, it is going to take you out of your comfort zone. The belief system that got you here isn't the belief system that's going to get you there. So you have to upgrade your belief system. You know, you have to change those beliefs, okay? You're going to have to learn new patterns of behavior. You're going to have to stretch yourself and get out of your comfort zone and stay out there long enough so that it becomes part of your comfort zone. You have to challenge those negative, like, voices in your head. You know, you have to look at where they're coming from. Is this really true? Is this just a fear? Is this just a doubt? Is this an insecurity? Is this my past trauma playing out? So I've coached lots of people. And what, what, I, what I see is when they get to this point, some of this stuff comes up. I had a client that came to me once and, like, coached him on, on what to do. And we got to this point where he started to get met with resistance. And, and what happened for him is, like, he was like, you know what? If, if I, he wasn't doing what I asked him to do, right? And I said to him, look, you're procrastinating. What's going on? And he said, no, 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 we're, we're all good. We're all good. And he procrastinated for a couple of weeks. I said, okay, come on, what's really going on here? And he said, everything's good. There's no fear. I'm all good. I'm good. And so I said, no, you're not. Something's stopping you here. Let's get to the root of what this is. So I asked him a few questions. And we got to the bottom of it. He was really afraid that if this deal went wrong, he'd lose a lot of money and his wife and kids would leave him. And I said to him, okay, I've met your wife, I've met your kids, you've been married for 20 years, what makes you think, number one, that's going to happen? And number two, if it did happen, what's, what, what makes you think that's going to be the case? He said, I don't know. I said, I said, has anything happened with your personal history? Well, when he was a kid, he was abandoned by his mother. So, of course, he's got this fear of abandonment. It's now coming up for him in the context of yeah. business. Okay? Yeah. This is his trauma coming up. So it's really important that we understand this and we understand that this is normal and this is the normal kind of thing that happens to people. I'm passionate about sharing this stuff because for 10 years, I did not know this stuff. I looped around in circles. I didn't live my best life. You know, I say this to people all the time, especially my students, people in my academy. You're not here just to run a business, okay? Your business, whatever you're choosing to do, is the vehicle for you to live your best life. So act up. Virtually everybody listening to this will have heard the phrase, you've got to stay out, live out your comfort zone. Life begins, you know, once you're outside of your comfort zone. Great motivational phrase. In reality, if people are shitting themselves, they don't like to stay out of their comfort zone. If it's triggering childhood stuff, whether it's, you know, deep, deep trauma or, or just a fear of getting it wrong because they could lose a shitload of cash, then... How do you move beyond that? Yeah, it, it, it's a really great question. And the thing is, how do you get beyond that? Okay, well, look, there's a couple of things that you need to do. Number one, you need to understand the psychology of what goes on, okay? This is why I created my book. It's you know, it's called The Code of Reaching Excellence. This is why I created it, so people can understand that. Sometimes just understanding and awareness can like take the edge and the pain off of it. The second thing is you need to be around people who understand this stuff as well. It's too easy for us, especially as entrepreneurs, to want to hide and only show the world when we're smashing it out of the park, when we're doing well and our business is thriving. But behind closed doors, when we've got challenges, when it's not going so well, when you're working too much and your wife's not happy and your kids are not happy, when we've got all that kind of stuff, we don't want to show the world that, okay? Why do we do that? Well, we don't want to be judged. We don't want to look bad. We don't look stupid. So how do we actually get past this? Well, it's very, very simple, but not easy. You have to be honest. 
you don't have to be honest with the world. You've got to find one person. It could be a friend. It could be a mentor. It could be a coach. Just someone that you can confide in. And you drop the mask. You drop the facade. You drop the bull- bullshit. And you be honest with people and go, you know what? Right now, I'm at my comfort zone. Right now, I'm shitting because of this. Okay? And sometimes just being honest creates the opportunity for people to see you for who you really are. And when they get to, when you get to, to let people see who you really are and they can accept you, it takes away all that sting. It takes away that fear. I think people are not only afraid of being out of their comfort zone, we're all afraid of being judged and looking stupid and looking bad. So what we can do is just by doing that part of the equation, which is we can just talk to someone, we can drop the mask, we can just say, this is what's going on for me right now. And that people can go, yeah, do you know what? Actually, I get where you're at. I understand what you're going through. And that understanding really takes a lot of the kind of pain out of it. That's a cathartic process. But you st- you, you, where, what, what is it that gets people from that um, resistance to the evolution? Absolutely. Is it, is it courage? Is it knowing that you've got a friend, a mentor, or someone that's got your back? And is it just sheer determination and courage? What is it that helps move from epiphanistic resistance to, to, to them moving to the conscious competence stage of evolution yeah it's 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 very simple having a massive reason why okay if you haven't got a big enough reason why then your excuses will be okay so one of the things that i get people to do this is part of the process that we have and again this is in my book the code reaching excellence is you need to have a very compelling vision for life and most people like when they go through this process they think oh yeah i've got a vision board and what they'll do is they'll go and get a vision board, they'll slap a load of images or cutouts and stuff from things that they think they like, okay? And it almost reminds me of when your five-year-old kid comes back from nursery and they've got this kind of collage, PVA glue, right? They've got all this stuff slapped there. Now, that's one way of doing things, but I don't think that's the best way of doing things. If you're going to create a life that you want to live in, it's going to be compelling. It has to be aligned to your core values. So I've had clients come to me and go, right, I've got this vision board. They pull out this big vision board and I go, this is great. Okay, let's elicit your values. Let's find out what's really important to you. And we find out what's really important to them. And half the things on their vision board are things they don't want. And they, don't, they then realize why they're not getting it. So you've got to create a life or create a vision of what you want for life that's compelling for you, that's aligned to your core values. When I work with people, my core values is family and kids. I've got two daughters that are 9 and 13, okay? I love being with them. I love spending time with them. You know, that, they're part of my value system. So they're part of my big reason why. So sometimes you have a bigger reason in yourself and if you haven't got that big enough reason, you're not going to be motivated to push through that resistance, okay? The pain of not doing something or not achieving your goal has to be greater than the pain that you're going to go through when you get met with that resistance. So we're shifting, a bit of NLP geeky phrasing now, the modal operators, then a possibility or necessity. So what we're going from here is um, knowing that you want to or you should change to making it a have to, making it a must. Absolutely. What we're doing here. By going through this process of creating a vision that's aligned to your values, your values, you're taking what you think you should do and turning it into a must. Your shoulds are going to a must. What happens neurologically, or what happens in terms of the old, the impact on the old patterns of self sabotage, of disbelief, or limiting beliefs, when the switch flicks and somebody goes in the head, I must, I have to, whether it's because of my children, whether it's because of you know, another purpose, but what what's the neurological change that shifts that then starts to impact on the self-sabotaging behavior, et cetera? Absolutely. So I did this with a new client who started with me a couple of weeks ago. We went through my process 
And part of this guy's reason why is to look after uh, one of his parents who's abroad. Okay, so when we went through this process of creating this compelling vision, why he was doing it, I also take them through a process which really gets them to dig deep and find out why. So um, it's, it's creating well-formed outcomes, okay? Mm-hmm. So once he went through this process and we was on a one-to-one call together, we got towards the end of it. And the last question I asked him is, what have you learned now going through this process? And he just welled up. He pretty much burst into tears. And I said, what is it you've learned? And he said to me, this goal that I'm trying to go for is like way, way bigger than what I realized. Because what he's realizing is what he's doing. It's not just something that's that's abstract. He's now realized that not only is it something he's going for, but he's also realized, because the questions I ask him is, what's going to happen if you don't achieve this? What's the consequences? What's, what's, what are you going to lose? You know, what will happen if you get it? What will happen if you don't get it? Okay. So he's now realizing. From, yeah. Stepping away from motivation and, and absolutely, motivation. We, yeah. Absolutely. We, we're looking at what he wants towards. We're also tapping into the pain of what's going to happen if you don't get this. And he's now looking, thinking, well, this particular parent of mine is in a, you know, in a country that's third world, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to suffer. So he's now got a rocket strapped to his backside going, hey, I'm going to go get out there. I'm going to go smash it because I don't want the pain of this and I don't want the pain of this for my, my relative, right? So this is the shift that happens. What happens then is the reason why that we're going to go do something is, is you know, it's bigger but the pain of not doing it, the consequence of doing it is far greater than, you know, the discomfort that you're going to go through as you go through those four phases of implementation. And that's what I see. That's what That was the difference that made the difference for me that made me break through. You know, that was like, hey, look, this is a matter of life or death. You know, if I don't do this and I don't succeed, my life is going to be grand. You know, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't me by this point. I, you know, a little bit later on, I, I told you a bit about my story. You know, it was when I got to a point where I had, you know, a partner and my first daughter that I kind of went through the same thing again. It's like, hang on, look, I need to do this for them. If I don't do this for them, this is going to be, you know, uh, bad for them, if that makes sense. You know, and I don't want to do that. So it's, it's having a greater pain. That was the tipping point, the difference that makes the difference. Stage four then. So we've gone eu- euphoria, yep. epiphany, evolution. It's got to be another E. Yeah, it is another E. It's the excellence phase. So one of the things that can happen is you, you, you break through, you start to get some results, you might get some results, but it's very easy at that point to hit a plateau. So this is where to go through those plateaus, those stuck places, those next bar ceilings, it's a shift in attitude. Okay, it's about going, how can I excel? How can I take this to the next level? And challenging yourself, okay? The, the, the problem is, I think, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, some of these personal development quotes, okay? Uh, get out of your comfort zone. But also comfort is the enemy of progress. And, and I've been there. I've been to a place where I've been really financially comfortable. I've got everything I needed. There was no pain to motivate me. It was like, I could plod along like this. You know, I retired for four years and it was a lo- it was lovely. It was great, but I had no pain. I had no motivation. I enjoyed getting up. I took the kids to school. It was nice, but there was nothing driving me to that next level. So, you know, I, in recent years, have kind of adopted this mindset of chasing excellence, okay? And excellence means whatever, you know, whatever is your version of excellence, right? There's no set, nothing set in stone. It's what's excellence for you. So for me, it was like, actually, I want to go beyond this. How do I grow beyond this? How do I take this to the next level? I might be comfortable right now, but actually I can be having way more. If I'm having way more than the people around me, my loved ones, my kids, family, you know, my community, they could be having more as well. So that, that's really where you need to get into this kind of attitude of excellence, which is you wake up every day and go, how am I going to excel today? Okay, how can I be the best version of myself? There's something else that we haven't touched on, but it's been implicit in what you've been saying, Akhtar, is that... Um, 
it's about raising your standards. And, and just let me articulate that, that when somebody is in that epiphany phase and struggling with resistance they're, and they're trying things, it's not working. So they try something else, it's not working. The real danger is they shrink back into a lesser version of themselves. They lower their standards and their negative talk runs runs crazy by saying, I'm not good enough. I, I've lost it. I used to have it I, or whatever. Um, so within what you've just described there is the journey where you say, not only is enough enough, I am not going to stand for this anymore, but I'm worthy, my children are worthy of a much higher standard of existence. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not going to allow yourself to settle back into a lesser version, playing it safe, going back to being in, in your life story, a grease monkey. Absolutely. And you know what? I've seen this before. I've seen people set out with the best of intentions going, hey, I hate my job. I hate my corporate career. I hate my boss. I'm going to go and pursue property or this business thing. And then what happens is they get into this point where they get they, they meet with resistance. They're in the, you know, the kind of epiphany phase. They're out of their comfort zone. And all of a sudden, they're now looking back because they're in a place of pain and discomfort. They're now looking back at their job and going, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad. Actually, you know, I used to get the company car and I had the pension. And actually, my boss wasn't really that bad. You know, he was only bad on a Friday afternoon. And they justify reasons to go back to mediocre irrational lie is all over themselves absolutely they tell themselves you must have had moments like that right because you know building your property portfolio wasn't all plain sailing so when you had your early um brushes with resistance or hit against those brick walls or those glass ceilings how did you get yourself through yeah absolutely so it it was I, i had a decade of doing it but being unconscious of it when you're aware of it you're then able to catch yourself doing it so Whenever, you know, uh, through that period of building my, my property portfolio, I was always working with a coach. I was always working with someone who could be my sense check and my external reality to give me the feedback that I needed. Because the problem is like when you're an entrepreneur, a lot of the time you work on your own. So you yeah. can do what you want to do. You can procrastinate. No one's going to pull you up on it. So being accountable to someone who can see you, get to know you, see your patterns of behavior, they'll call you out. You know, you need someone to... And I think this is a very loving act. Okay, sometimes people don't always see this. Inside of my academy, my community, we've got this real open attitude and like um, culture where you know people can drop the mask, they can say honestly what they're going through, and you know just share vulnerably what's going on for them and be supported and be held and have that space. But also, I'll call people out on their bullshit because it doesn't serve them. If we if we buy into those lies and we buy into that narrative that we're saying it's limiting us, we will not go to that next level. I see people all the time that go, yeah, yeah, I'm all good, and this is all good, and they're justifying and rationalizing why they're in that situation. And I have to sometimes say to them, look, buddy, I'm putting an arm around you, and I'm saying this with love and respect, okay? And I'm telling you this because I genuinely care about you, and I can see your potential. You're here right now, but the sky's the limit for you, and the reason you're not there is because you're doing this and you're bullshitting yourself. And they go, oh, wow, kind of stings a little bit because I trust you, I'm going to take it on board. So we need someone to call us out. We need someone to help us to see those blind spots that we can't see ourselves because we don't know what we don't know. We can't see what we can't see. We want to call us out, but also somehow in in the one hand, someone is going to be challenging us, but on the other hand, supporting us and, uh, you know, pushing you off the edge in terms of taking that leap, but also knowing that they're right with you as, you, as, as, as that supporting hand and that voice in your ear to say, you can do this. Absolutely. I, I was thinking as you go through those stories and you were saying at the epiphany stage where you've got resistance, a lot of people, get fearful of what it where it could go wrong and and 
we 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 have a shared interest and in, in, in passion of sailing. And um, a story and in this a, a true story came to mind. Uh, I had um, my honeymoon with uh, my wife Larry uh, sailing in in the in the um, Croatia, and uh, beautiful beautiful country, beautiful sailing. Um, very rocky seabed. So for anybody listening that knows about uh, knows about sailing, anchoring is really challenging. And we'd gone to this bay where there was a beautiful restaurant that was recommended in the the pilot book, the guidebook, uh, two mooring boys for visitors. We got there because we spent too long at another bay swimming and having lunch. And then we got there too late and then both of the anchorages, so both of the mooring boys were taken. So we spent half an hour trying to get the anchor to stick, uh, to, to grip, and it wouldn't. And so it's six o'clock, 6 p.m. It goes dark quite early, relatively speaking, in the summer to, to, to it does here in the UK. And we were looking at a six-hour sail around the corner of the island and into another harbour, most of which would have been done at night. And the wind was building. And I was, I'm not afraid to say, I was shitting myself, I was worried about it. And, but we had no choice. We could not, we, there was no way we could stay where we, we had. We had no choice. And I remember uh, my new wife at the time saying to me, Larry, saying to me, look, you've been sailing since you were four. You know how to do this. You know how to sail at night. You know how to navigate. You know what to do if the wind gets up. Just let's get going and you'll be all right. And it's that analogy about when the car, you know, you're driving at night with the headlights on, you can only see the next sort of 200 yards in front of you. So, you know, I was nervous. I got going. I did it. You know, I don't know what to do. You know, put reef in. The wind got up. Um, okay, sometimes it was a bit hard picking out the navigational lights from all of the sort of light pollution from the street lights around on the shoreline. We got there. We got to the new harbour. There was supposed to be moorings, you know, six hours later. We had a good we had a good sail round. We got to the new harbour and um, there was supposed to be mooring boys to pick up in the visibility and the torches that we had on. We couldn't see any of the mooring boys. So we got into the harbour and we just thought, wow, how are we going to go stern to? There was actually a massive height differential between the water level and the, and the, and the, and the shoreline on the, on the quayside. It was something like 10 feet. It was ridiculous. And um, while we were thinking, what we're going to do, we're tired by this stage. It's knocking on midnight. We're exhausted. We've just had an extra big sail that we didn't expect. And then there was just loads of other people there saying, come on, let's help you. We'll throw you the lines. We'll help you. Just other, other sort of people on boats there that helped us in. And we were in this amazing harbour on the island of Viz, which was which was just stunning and was probably a real highlight of our trip having got there. But it's this analogy for me was that moment was, is it's the, the presence of somebody to help you get past your fears of what could go wrong who know that has the trust and the faith in you that can help that you know you will know what to do on the journey if you got there that it always works out much better than you could have fear, ever feared it would have done. Absolutely, and you know what, what I take from that is just having someone who can see what you can't see and has the belief in you because in those moments when we are in a, we're afraid we, we're literally overridden we're hijacked by fear. I, again, I talk about this in my book, The Code of Reaching Excellence. But you, we need to learn how to bypass those basic instincts that we've got. You know, I call it the caveman. There's lots of complex ways of looking at the brain, but we've got that part of the brain that's responsible for survival, fight or flight. I call it the caveman brain because all it wants to do is keep you safe. It likes what's familiar and doesn't like what is unfamiliar. It likes to know stuff, right? It's an inbuilt survival mechanism. Now, this is all great when we were living in caves thousands of years ago or small like Stone Age settlements, but it's a maladaptive for today. And the key thing is one of the biggest problems that people have is if they don't know what to do or they can't see ahead, 
we get blinded by fear and it can immobilize us. And the key thing is how do we get out of faith? How do we get out of fear? Is having faith and trusting in the process. Okay, I don't know what to do. We're stuck in this bay. We've got six hours to get around to the next place. Okay, it'll be all right. You've got your wife there saying, okay, it'll be fine. You know exactly what to do. Well, you know, when we get to that place where we're triggered and we're in fear, we become stupid because part of the brain shuts down. We lose consciousness. And then afterwards, like, what happens? That's why we've got that saying, you know, we're blinded by fear. Well, we're not. Part of the brain shuts down. And that is, that's a survival mechanism. It just diverts all the blood to this part of the brain. You know, we go through these physiological responses. You know, this is the whole file flight system, right? We get kicked into that into, into a daily basis. But again, it's maladaptive for today. So we can't do much about that, but we can try and bypass it. So you've got your wife there telling you, look, you can do this. You get to the, you know, your destination. You're like, wow, there's a 10-foot quayside. How are we going to get there? Again, it's the unknown. So many times people like won't do something because they don't know what the next step is. And I used to be exactly the same. I'm, I'm going to stay in my comfort zone. But I've learned through experience that if you just go and take the next step, even if you don't know what to do, if you have faith that one way or another you'll find the answer, you'll get the help you need, or someone will come along, something will fall into place, yeah? You're not going to use not knowing as an excuse. So I had a client that came and worked with me about a year ago, and she used to want to know what the next 10 steps are. And I used to say to her, hold on, we just need to know this one step. And she used to panic and freak out. And I said, right, I've got an exercise for you to do. She's like, what is that? And I said, right, I want you to go and do a jigsaw puzzle. Go and get a jigsaw puzzle. And I want you to do it, but I want you to throw the box away so you can't see the picture. And she freaked out, like, how am I going to do that? What do I do? And like, <laughs> and I said, exercise. you're going to figure this out. You're going to figure this out. And the, the, the reason I got her to do this is because if you don't know and don't have the picture, it's going to make, we're going to get hijacked by our caveman mind. It's going to want us, want us to stay safe. When we step out of the cave and we don't know something, we don't know whether that's a saber-toothed tiger that's going to eat us or if it's a fluffy bunny. So it doesn't take chances. It doesn't take a risk. It wants to keep us alive. So we have this deep, like, part of us as human beings, we want to know. We want to know what the next 10 steps are. It makes us feel safe. So we need to bypass that and hack that. So with this client, I said to her, okay, here's what we need to do. I'm going to give you a tip. Start with the corners and start with the edges, okay, and then put one piece in at a time. And of course, she did this over a, like, over a space of three or four weeks, thousand piece puzzle. She didn't like it at first, but then she came back and said, actually, you know what, Akhtar, I know why you're giving me this, right? Every time I put a piece in, I just need to put one piece in at a time. This is why you're telling me to do things one step at a time and trust the process. And what happened was once she got it done, it was a beautiful picture and she sent me a picture of it. It was like flowers and roses and stuff. But this is what we need to do. We need to not let uncertainty hijack us yeah not let that old part of our brain that's responsible for fight or flight that old caveman mind hijack us because it will and guess what even though i'm sharing this stuff with you might coach people it still hijacks me from time to time and i have to go ah okay let me just stop and reset and get myself back into a resourceful place let me go and speak to someone who is my coach my mentor who can help me to see the things that i can't see at the moment we have to bypass this stuff and we cannot use i personally don't believe that we cannot use not knowing as an excuse not to take action Let's go take that step. Yeah, you've Let's got pour there. Yeah. This is a good moment for us to recap that journey, the key stages on the journey for Akhtar. First was the wake-up call, you know, the life-changing moment where he nearly lost his life. That led to step two, which was around awareness and his wanting to go and increase awareness of his patterns, his self-sabotaging or destructive patterns. Third, there was the learning to help fuel or inform the awareness. And for Akhtar, the journey was NLP, therapy, hypnotherapy. 
but yet still he had habitual patterns of behavior. But the more that you become aware, the more you see of those patterns, how negative they are, and you start to notice and become aware of the emotional responses. He said and shared with us that, you know, whenever you are trying to hit level up, you will always hit a, a glass ceiling. They could be limiting beliefs or trauma coming up to the surface, but you have to break through that glass ceiling. You need to heal that trauma. You need to address those limiting beliefs. You know, I'll say that there's always a breakthrough. So there's always a breakdown before a breakthrough. In actual fact, if you feel like this, you know, you're challenging and you're pushing the limits and you're really pushing and things go wrong and it feels like you just want to quit, you're having a bit of a kind of like breakdown. You're wondering how on earth this is going to come good. That's a good sign. There's always a breakdown before a breakthrough. So the Axel went on to talk about four phases of implementation. Euphoria. Yeah, that euphoria piece, which is around, great, I think I've got the solution to my you know, problem to help me get from A to my goal B. Um, then there's the epiphany. Ah, it's not going to be as easy as I thought. I've met resistance. I'm being tested. The imposter syndrome. You know, that crisis of confidence. Um, and this, of course, is where most people get stuck. They get resistance. They get uh, they get uh, pushback. Things don't work as the plan. Things take longer than they thought they would be. And at that time, people start to ask that really, really um, damaging question of themselves, which is, am I good enough? Evolution was step three, which is that evolution, you challenge that negative voice, you get out and stay out of your comfort zone. But in order to do that, you need a massive reason why. If you don't have a big enough reason why, then your excuses will be, was a great quote from Akhtar. So you need a compelling life, compelling vision for your life, but it has to be aligned with what's important to you, your core values. Turn those shoulds into a must. And step four was about excellence. Comfort is the enemy of progress. If you've got no pain, it might, you know, for those, particularly for those who are way motivated, you're not going to have that drive going forward. So, you know, for many of you uh, will have heard about this concept about we are habitually drawn towards, motivated towards the things that give us pleasure and, and motivated to move away from the things that cause us pain. Some people are innately wired, as most people are innately more away motivated, and I, they will do more to move away from the pain and get out of discomfort into comfort than they will, than they will do to get into pleasure. So some people are more motivated to move away from pain than they are to move towards pleasure. But what's most powerful is when you create a, p a propulsion mechanism where you simultaneously set up in your mind and you stack all the pain the consequences that if I don't change this is what's going to happen and you also stack all the upside the benefits um, of what will happen when you do make that change or you do stay at your comfort zone and keep growing keep making progress and then simultaneously you're being propelled away from the stuff that you don't want and towards the stuff that you do want accountability is key and the other thing about accountability is um, um, not only is to hold to make sure you don't procrastinate or you don't kind of like wimp out or shy away the beauty of a mentor or a coach um is kind of a protagonist. They 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 equal in equal measures support and they challenge. They'll shine a torch of brilliance of belief upon you, but they will also challenge you, hold you accountable, make sure you go follow through and deliver. You know, 
you, I think Simon Sinek says that you'll do more, we'll all do more, be more courageous when you know someone has your back. When you know someone's got your back, you're gonna push harder. Uh, that doesn't have to be a you know an external coach. It could be a member of your team. It could be a, you know a co co board member of the board of directors. It could be you know a critical friend. But you want someone that's got your back, but won't accept your BS. That won't accept your excuses that will again shine that torch of brilliance upon you that light of belief and confidence on you more than at times you can see in yourself to say you you need to take the action but I know you've got the capability to deliver on this not going to be an easy ride but I know you've got the capability to deliver on this and you know the final comment there from Akhtar was we cannot use not knowing as an excuse for not taking action and remember my story about having to set sail at 6 p.m um you know with fading light and increasing wind and that you know uh, other um, sort of analogy of when you're driving at night with your headlights on you can only see the next 200 yards in front of you but we still managed to get to our destination by seeing the next 200 yards and the next 200 yards so don't use we cannot um allow not knowing as an excuse for not taking action so the key things for me that come out of this is stack your reasons why make them powerful enough make them aligned to your core values uh, what's really really important to you get someone to hold your feet to the fire to hold you accountable and simultaneously shine that um spotlight to a, a belief in your brilliance upon you and start taking action take the next action if that doesn't work try something else take the next action if that doesn't work try something else take the next action oh and by the way if you're that period of resistance that stage two that epiphany it may endure it may endure it may last for some period of time and you may think you've spent six twelve months treading water and getting nowhere do not underestimate how much you've learnt and grown over that 12 months and still keep focused and fixated on the result of the reasons why and where we're aiming. We've got to take action. Let's not using not knowing as an excuse for to not take action. Akhtar, you're a legend. Love you to bits. It's been a really phenomenal conversation. I have purposefully wanted this conversation to go longer and deeper than I would normally do. I hope everybody listening to this has got a huge amount of value from this conversation. If you would like to reach out to Akhtar to find out what he does within his group programs, uh, to find out more um, about his book, how can anybody find you and find out what the, the work you do in property and in business around acquisitions, etc.? Absolutely. Just go to my website, uh, reachingexcellence.com. Uh, we find us on social media. We're on Instagram. We are on most of those kind of social platforms, Facebook, etc. Just just drop us a line. Uh, if you want to speak to me one-to-one, you can book a call with me. I'm happy to chat with people. And you can do it all for our, for our website. You know, it's interesting when we talk about growth in business, whether it be property uh, or, or, you know, property or business. Uh, we haven't been talking about those strategies today. We've been talking about it entirely about mindset, about patterns of behavior that can stop people moving forward because no matter of education around the strategies in business or property uh, they're, they're not going to work if the person working them won't work and won't doesn't have the belief 
that they can work. Absolutely. And this is the thing, you see, you can learn, you can take all the theory in the world. One of the things that we haven't got, we haven't been taught is a system for implementation. And that's what the Code Reaching Excellence is really about. It's about how do we take that theory and turn it into reality. Go and grab yourself a copy of the Code Reaching Excellence uh, or your book is reaching, sorry, your business what, uh, website is reachingexcellence.com. Yeah. Akhtar, you're a star. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Business Mastermind Podcast with myself, Gavin Preston. You know, we love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Like, review and subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on. It does make a difference. If you are a regular listener, why not buy us a coffee? You can do this by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash businessmaster. You'll also be able to get access to exclusive content from the guests and myself further insights and information on the featured episodes and how you can get more access for yourself and your business.